take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 is where we will start. With Daniel, we end the section called The Major Prophets. In our book-by-book review of the landscape of the Scripture, we're kind of giving an overview of each book as we move through the Scripture. Today, the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, starting in chapter 1. Here's the key concept for today. There are things that only God can do and things that only God can say. We will hear those things, the prophecy of Daniel. Only God can create time and space. Only God who exists outside of time can orchestrate the future and tell us about it. And here in this mysterious book of Daniel, we are reminded that the Bible is a divine book. God is speaking through the pages of this book. He uses human authors to write, but in this book it is inspired by God. It is about God. It shows us the heart of God and the plans of God and the power of God to make His plans come to be. If you do not accept that, then you will not accept what you read on the pages of the the prophecy of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, the, the curtain between the natural and the supernatural is pulled aside. And we see how God is orchestrating all of time. Daniel and Ezekiel both prophesied in captivity. They were prisoners in the land of Babylon. They were deported early in the waves of the invasions of the Babylonians. And Daniel was brought up into the palace. He lived in the the capital city, Babylon itself, where Ezekiel prophesied among the common people. But Daniel is one of those rare individuals who was called to speak for righteousness in the courts of power. And even more rare, Daniel was a man who was able to serve in multiple um, uh, administrations, Many kings, even when the Babylonian Empire fell and the Persian Empire took over, still he was looked to as an advisor. But to do that, he had to resist the temptation to blend in to the culture of Babylon. The book divides itself into two halves, two easy-to-see halves. Chapters 1 through 6 concern itself mainly with the events that take place while Daniel is living. And chapter 7 through 12 concerns itself mainly with the visions that Daniel has and the prophecies for the future, some of it near, some of it distant. In the first half of the book of Daniel, Daniel, is, Daniel demonstrates how we can live by faith in a hostile world. The book opens with Daniel as a young man. And he and his friends have been captured and placed in training schools, schools to train them to be attendants in the king's court. But part of the training is a special diet that the Babylonians want to put these young men on. But the problem is the Babylonians did not keep kosher. And to eat these foods would be to violate the dietary laws of the Jews. Immediately Daniel has a problem. What should he do? Should he go along to get along? Should he kind of blend in to where whatever he is, whatever is happening, just keep his head low and kind of blend in to the circumstances around him, stand up for what he believes? What I want you to know is this. If Daniel had chosen to blend in, we would never have heard about him. He would not be used of God. He would not be the instrument that God used to portray eons of time that was coming so that we could see his hand unfolding the future. Thankfully, he stood tall. And he came back to his captors with a proposal. In chapter 1, verse 12, here's what he says. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. And after the 10 days is over, 
What we see is that those, who are, those Jews who were on the, the, the Jewish diet, they actually were thriving in their appearance as opposed to those who were on the Babylonian diet. And, uh, and uh, Daniel is victorious in this challenge. But notable for us is this lesson. If you stand your ground for what you know to be right in what you consider to be even small things, cave in to what you know to be wrong, even in small things, then when big things come along, you'll not be able to stand your ground. If you get used to saying things like, well, this is no big deal. If you get used to saying things like, well, nobody will know, nobody will care, nobody will see, and your life is a life of compromise in the dark when nobody will see. It will be compromise in the light when big things come. And in chapter 2 of Daniel, big things come. It doesn't come in the form of a temptation. It comes in the form of an opportunity to be the vessel through which God is glorified. Because King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants to know the meaning of this dream. But he's suspicious of his court astrologers. He has advisors and astrologers all around him interpreting the signs and the portents. But Nebuchadnezzar is suspicious. How would I know that these men who say they're in touch with the supernatural, how would I know that they're just not making this stuff up to keep their jobs? And so he insists that they first tell them the dream. Now, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar forgets the dream. He doesn't. He is dealing shrewdly with the people around him who claim to have mysterious insight. He wants them to prove their ability. In fact, he feels so strongly about it that we can read in verse 5 of chapter 2 what he says. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Game on. He means business. And the astrologers come back and they say, King, no one in the world can do that. There is no one who can tell you your dream and then interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar is true to his word. Look at verse 13. I'm going to read it from off the screen from the King, New King James Version. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. I read that from the New King James, because if you're looking at the NIV, it's not clear that they actually started. The killings had begun. Nebuchadnezzar meant what he said. They were starting to kill the astrologers and turn their house to rubble. And they come to Daniel. The executioner comes to Daniel, who's among the advisors now. And Daniel pleads for time to pray and gain an interpretation. And God gives Daniel the dream. And he gives him the interpretation. Daniel is given an audience before Nebuchadnezzar. And over in chapter 2, verse 31, here's what he says. You read it along. He says, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of iron and partly uh, of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not with human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Provides the key to unlocking the prophecies of the future that we see in the second half of the book. But for Nebuchadnezzar, a simple point is being made. And the point is this. Even though you feel yourself to be the king of the world, there is a God in heaven. And he is the one who orchestrates history. And he gives the rise and the fall of the kingdoms of men. And this dream shows that your kingdom is not forever. But there is a kingdom that is. And he shows how history will unfold. We have a slide that demonstrates the statue, the, the vision, and this is how, this is the interpretation of the vision. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the Babylonian Empire, 
and he is the golden head. But that will not be forever. After him will come another empire called the Medo-Persian Empire in 538 B.C. Babylon, Babylon falls. And the Persian Empire is not forever. After them will come another empire, 333 B.C., led by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then come the legs of iron, iron, that, in, that, that metal of warfare, and the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire moves into a place of weakness as it is mixed with clay. And a stone not hewn by human hands smashes that weakness and the entire statue of the empires of men falls. And an eternal empire is set up, an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. Daniel gives that interpretation. Verse 44 of chapter 2, we see that final word being spoken. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor it will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This, Nebuchadnezzar, is how history will unfold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is so, you know, impressed by Daniel telling him his, vision, his dream and telling him the interpretation that Daniel gets a promotion. In chapter 3, the scene shifts a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar is so taken with the idea that his kingdom is the kingdom of gold that he has a statue of gold of himself erected in the middle of the place there and when certain music begins to be played, he orders that all the people bow down and worship the statue. Now this is about more about Daniel's friends than Daniel himself because three of his friends in that group that have been captured are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they will not bow down to the statue of the king. And the punishment for not bowing down to the statue of the king is you get thrown into the fiery furnace and burned alive. And so the king has them thrown into the furnace. But amazingly, they're not burned. And in the fire, they don't die. In fact, they thrive. And the angel of the Lord visits them there. He looks in and he sees four figures, not three. And when he pulls them back out again, their clothes aren't even singed. They don't smell like smoke. They're not burned. And to say Nebuchadnezzar is impressed would be an understatement. Once again, he is shocked at the power of the God of the Israelites. And so go to ver verse 29 of chapter 3 and we'll see his decree. By now it's getting familiar. He says, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. This guy's real big on the whole piles of rubble of your house thing, you know. But this is, you know, he means business with this. Nobody says anything bad about this God. Well, by the time we get to chapter 4, remember Nebuchadnezzar's issue, the issue that he struggles with is pride. Pride on a massive scale. He is the emperor of the world that he knows at this point. And in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's pride is dealt with by God. God drives him insane. He causes him to go mad. And for a period of years, seven years, he lives like an animal. He's off the throne. He's not in charge anymore. He's roaming the, the forest. He's eating grass. And then eventually that madness lifts from him, just like a fog goes up. And by the time we get to verse 34 of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar now is stating what he's learned. He says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled before the one true God. Now, we don't know if this... this attitude of worship to Yahweh continues or not, but he has this moment of clarity that there is a God in heaven who runs the affairs of man.
Well, when we turn over to chapter 5, we see the end of the Babylonian Empire. Yeah, this is the familiar story where we get the phrase, seeing the handwriting on the wall. You use that phrase, we do in everyday speech, to mean sensing that bad things are coming. And it comes right from this story. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. Belshazzar is the king. The Bible says he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but it means descendant in that usage. He is the descendant. He's actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar wants to prove to the Babylonians that he's not so inclined to be favorably, favorably disposed towards this god of a defeated people. And so Belshazzar one night decides that he will profane and insult the god of the Jews. He's having a, a feast. And he orders that the cups, the temple cups that have been taken from the temple when the Babylonians destroyed it, be brought into the feast area. And they be used as drinking vessels for a drunken feast. Belshazzar is deliberately defying God, and God shows up. Chapter 5, verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. I love the detail there, because in these days, remember, there's no electric lights. There's lampstands, and there's periods of dark in between where the lampstand glows. And they couldn't see it if it was written there. It goes to the, where the lampstand is. He writes the message, and the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he's so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king passes out, but his, ascent, uh, his attendants don't. And they remember, there is an elderly guy who Nebuchadnezzar used to go to for answers. Maybe he can tell us what this writing is all about. And so they go and they find Daniel as an elderly man. And Daniel looks at the words and he understands them to be a cryptic message in ancient Aramaic. It's given to us in verse 25 what is written on the wall. These words. Daniel can decode it. It is a message of doom. God has the number of your days and that number is up. God has weighed your kingdom in the balance and found it wanting. Your kingdom will be defeated and divided. No time to wait until it came true. That very night Darius the Mede, under orders of Cyrus the Great, invades Babylon. Belshazzar is killed. The Babylonian Empire is over, and the Persians take over. The Medo-Persian Empire. Now, I haven't mentioned the Medes too much because we've been going fast, but it's probably good to talk about who are the Medes. Uh, Daniel calls, calls the empire the empire of the Medes and the Persians that comes after Babylon. It's important to us to understand. You will hear about the Medes on the news tonight. They are not called that anymore. But the, the Medes are the ancestors of the Kurds. The Persians are the ancestors of the Iranians, of Iran. These people are still in our news, okay? But the Medo-Persian Empire is called Medo-Persia. Persia had defeated the Medes, but what they've done is they've incorporated much of their policies and actually kept their people in positions of power. So now it's kind of a uh, a conjoined empire, if you will, but Cyrus the Great is, is the king. So Darius, who Daniel calls King Darius, is a Mede. He's actually a governor but his, under Cyrus, but his power is so great that he's referred to as king. Well, in chapter 6 of Daniel, uh, we, we see that even as an elderly man, Daniel is willing to stand tall for the Lord. Darius asks him to defy his faith. Daniel won't do it. He's thrown into the den of lions. And once again, the king is impressed with the power of the God of these defeated people because Daniel is preserved in the lion's den. When we cross over into chapter 7 of Daniel, we're moving into the prophetic section of the book uh, where most of the prophecies and so forth are given. And what we note immediately is that chapter 7 is not a chronological continuation. 
Because in chapter 5, Belshazzar has died, but now in chapter 7, we're given a vision that Daniel has had in the time of Belshazzar. These, the second half of the book of Daniel is kind of just a compilation of the visions and the prophecies that came his way, yeah, a summary of that. And, and Daniel's prophecies, the whole second half of the book, is meant to teach us this lesson, that God sees the future and he shapes the future. That's what he wants us to know. Good for us to understand the way that the prophets see the future. Uh, we see this format very clearly in Daniel's writings. I, 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 I'm, I drew you a picture so I could explain it. Literally, I drew you a picture. This is the picture. The, the, way, the way that the prophets see the future as they look down the corridors of time and make their prophecy is like a man looking through a telescope at a range of mountains. And he sees the first peak, but he doesn't see the valley between the first and the second peak of mountains, okay? Now, we'll call those peaks the arrival of the king, the first arrival of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And Daniel is able to see the landscape that approaches that first peak with great clarity because there's nothing to obscure it. And so he, 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 in his prophecies, we'll see him talk about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire. And he's very clear and very precise, and the accuracy will stun you in the way that he was able to foresee those events. But the valley of time after that first century where I've written the word church, this period of time that we are in right now, he doesn't see real clearly until it begins to emerge above the first peak. And that's really right towards the end. And so in Daniel, we have this combination of prophecy that takes a long look at the stuff that goes up to the first coming and then a very quick jump to the last portion of the events that lead up to the second coming. And we'll see that unfold in the second half of the, of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, he has his own dream. And uh, this dream for, uh, forecasts, uh, I should say, correlates to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Only this time, it's not a statue that illustrates the coming kingdoms. It's beasts. And then in great detail, we are told about a horn that has the eyes of a man. Remember, horn always symbolizes power in the Bible. That has the eyes of a man who speaks boast, boastfully and persecutes the saints. And that is that second mountain peak. He's jumped that, that last days, the end days, and this is what he tells will happen to that uh, final evil king. He says, in my vision, verse 13 of chapter 7, sorry. He says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. That is his description of what was symbolically given as that rock hewn without human hands who smashes all the kingdoms. And that is a description of the Messiah when he comes. Now what's interesting about that is that when Jesus walked the earth, the title that he used of himself more than any other title is taken right from that verse. He called himself the Son of Man. Over and over again, when we get to the Gospels, you'll see it. He calls himself the Son of Man. Why? for those who have ears to hear, for those who would make the connection. He's calling himself the Son of Man, saying, I am the one that Daniel sees in the vision. This is me. It was a clear announcement of divinity. Many didn't get it, but it was clearly there. And chapter 7 begins this, uh, this um, 
prophetic aspect of, of uh, the book of the books of Daniel. Uh, some of the details of the second portion of the book are up for debate and a lot of discussion but again the point is being made over and over again as you move through it that the future is known by God the future is shaped by God now in chapter 8 once again Daniel has another vision of beasts but in this vision Gabriel shows up to give us the interpretation and so he does he does that in chapter 8 verse 20 Gabriel the angel is speaking to Daniel and he gives him the interpretation of the vision that he's seen he says this it's a vision of a ram and of a goat he says, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Exactly was fulfilled in Alexander the Great's time. Alexander the Great rampaged through this area of the world during his reign. He set up an empire built on violence and fury. However, Alexander the Great died young with no successor. And so what happened, just as predicted, four generals emerged from Alexander's kingdom and divided up that empire. But each of them was much weaker than Alexander himself in terms of his power. Read on, verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation. This stern-faced king is rising <clears throat> from one of the divided kingdoms from Alexander's empire is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, we will see as we go through some more of the historical books, Antiochus Epiphanes is a, 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 lead, a Greek leader who is absolutely wanting to wipe out the Jewish race. He hates the Jews, has everything, uh, wants nothing to do with them. And in fact, he defiles the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. He causes the uh, sacrifices to be abolished. All of this happens. He is powerful, but notice verse 24, but his power doesn't come from himself. Anti-Semitism is satanically inspired. God, uh, no, he, God has planned that the Messiah for the world will come from his chosen people and here you see Satan wanting to wipe out that race so that that opportunity for salvation never happens. But Antiochus Epiphanes is, is, is defeated. In chapter 9 is a, a different section altogether, but in chapter 9, Daniel is pouring out his heart in a repentance prayer. He's saying, God, I know why we're in bondage. It's because we rebelled against you. But could you relent? Would you send your people back? Can we reclaim our homeland? And he date stamps that prayer as the first year of, of uh, Darius the Great, uh, King Darius. And what's so significant about that is that the very next year, we know, Cyrus releases the Jews to go home. And in response to that prayer in chapter 9, Gabriel shows up again. He gives Daniel the outline of the 77s, uh, uh, the 70 weeks of seven, and, and there's all kinds of interpretation about what that means specifically. But everyone would agree that this is a timetable of prophecy. And the point is made once again, God is in charge of the future. In J Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a heavenly visitor, and the visitor reminds him, you know, these battles you see happening on the earth, there are supernatural struggles as well. 
in the heavenlies a battle is raging against the evil forces and, and uh, Daniel we're on your side and then we get to Daniel chapter 11 and if ever there was a chapter that should give you confidence to know that when God says something will happen it will absolutely happen it is Daniel chapter 11 there is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in cha Daniel chapter 11 that we now look back on as history it actually happened Daniel 11 foretells the coming of the kings of Persia foretells the coming of Alexander the Great the prophecy is there about the king who will marry Queen Esther uh, in your Bible it foresees the split of Alexander's holdings and the rise of Egypt and the uh, intrigue in the family of the Egyptian kings that we now know as the Ptolemy family which are the ancestors of Cleopatra it foresees Antiochus Epiphanes setting up a pagan idol that's called the abomination of desolation and his defeat and remember, now this is a section, I actually didn't go into that detail with you, but, but Daniel is written in both Aramaic and Hebrew. And this is a section written in Hebrew. And the reason is because he wants the Jews who will be going through all of this turmoil to know God has it in hand. He has predicted that all of this will come. You can rest in his power. And then in chapter 11, verse 36, go there because I want to remind you of those mountain peaks. In, in chapter 11, verse 36, Daniel's, Daniel's gaze stops focusing on the first peak and it jumps to the second. But all he sees is the very topmost section of that second peak of the end times. Your English Bible should have an indentation in chapter 36 as if a new paragraph is beginning. Maybe it has a title there. And the reason is because now he's jumping to that later evil king that will come and act like Antiochus Epiphanes acts and he too will be against the Jews and he too will set up an, an evil idol in the, in the then temple. And this is what it, we read in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. You know that evil king in the New Testament. This evil king has titles. We call him the man of lawlessness, a shrine to himself in the temple. And he will think that it promotes him in pride, but in reality it starts the doom clock ticking for him. And God has given all of this to encourage his people as it happens. And we may be there when that one happens. I have history in hand, he says. Daniel's head is swimming by the end of this book. He's like, what is going on? And he asks a question. In, the, in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? He replied, go your way, Dan, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. What that sealed means is this. This is dialed in. This is wrapped up. This is going to happen. This is the way it works. You should live your life, Daniel, and watch God work. And then down to verse 13. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of, days, of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. The angel says to Daniel, Daniel, you're going to die. But death is not the end. You're going to rise again. And you will see the plan, as you have prophesied it, work out perfectly. And God is saying the same to us. He's saying, those of us who are living, he's saying, rest in the plan. Rest in the confidence. You know, study the word so you know what's coming and you have a hint of what's coming. But rest in the confidence that God's going to work it out. Resist the temptation to speculate more than is given and rest in the assurance that God has it all worked out. Now for the believer, this is great assurance. But for the unbeliever, this is a warning. If you think that you're determining your destiny, you think that we human beings are working out what's coming next, there is an eternal God 
who will one day step onto the stage of history. And when he does, he comes as judge. Reminds me of my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. In writing of the end times, he says, when the author steps onto the stage, the play is over. The author of all history is going to step onto the stage. And there is a question that we take away from the book of Daniel. Are you ready? Are you ready?